0: If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. And it's available now wherever fine books are sold.
1: This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM, and I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Gary Marcus. He is a scientist, an author, an entrepreneur. He's a professor in the Department of Psychology at NYU. He was the founder and CEO of Geometric Intelligence, a machine learning company later acquired by Uber. He has a new company called Robots.ai and a new book called Rebooting AI. So we should have a great chat. Welcome to the show, Gary. Thanks very much for having me. So. Why is intelligence such a hard thing to define, and and why is artificial intelligence artificial? Is it really intelligence, or is it just something that can mimic intelligence? Or are there is there not a difference between those two things? I think different
0: people have different views about that. I'm not doctrinaire about vocabulary. <laughs> I think that um, intelligence itself is is a multi dimensional variable. Like people want to stuff it into a single number and say you know, your iq is 110 or 160 or 92 or whatever it is um, but there are really many things that go into natural intelligence uh, such as the ability to solve problems you haven't seen before or the ability to recognize objects or um, the ability to speak or to be very verbal about it there's many many different dimensions to intelligence we t- when we talk about artificial intelligence we're basically talking about whether machines can do some of those things
1: so you're a p- provocative guy with all kinds of ideas in all different areas. Talk a little bit about the mind, how you think it comes about in thirty seconds or less, please. Uh, and uh, the mind, how you think it comes about, and and will artificial intelligence need to have a mind to do a lot of the things we want it to do?
0: Well, the, the best thing I ever heard about that in a short version was Stephen Pinker was on Stephen Colbert, and Colbert asked him to explain the brain in five words, and he said, "Brain cells fire in patterns." So that's how our brains work, is is there's a lot of neural firing and minds emerge um, from the activity of those brains. Um, We still don't really understand what all that means. So we don't have a very good um, grip on what the neural processes are that give rise to basic things like speaking sentences. We have a long way to go understanding it in those terms. Um, I, I tend to take a psychologist's perspective more than a neuroscience perspective and say the mind is all of our cognitive functions. It's how we think and how we reason, how, how we understand our place in the world. Machines, if we want to get to the point where they're trustworthy, are going to have to do many of the things that human minds do, not necessarily in identical ways, but they're going to have to be able to capture, for example, the flexibility that human minds have such that when they encounter something they haven't seen before, they can cope with it and not just breakdown.
1: I I know you said you don't usually approach it uh, from neurology, but I'm I'm fascinated by the nematode worm, you know, who's got uh, just a handful of neurons, and people have spent so long, 20 years of the Open Worm Project, trying to model those 302 neurons to make behavior, and they're not even sure it's even possible to do that. So, do you think we are going to have to crack that code and understand something about how the brain works before we can build truly intelligent machines, or is it like you know the the old saw about airplanes and, and birds? Like it's, they're going to they're going to think in a way that's alien to the way how we think.
0: I guess I I think it's somewhere in between, um, but I'm also pushing towards the psychology side. So I don't think that <coughs> understanding the connectome of the human brain, all those connections, is anytime soon gonna really help us with AI. But I do think that understanding psychology better, like how people reason about everyday objects as they navigate the world, that might actually help us. So psychology isn't as much of a prestige discipline, so to speak, as neuroscience. Uh, Neuroscience gets more money, gets more attention. Um, Neuroscience will probably tell us a lot about the nature of intelligence in the long term, but that could be a long term of 50 or 100 years. And meanwhile, thinking about psychology has actually led to some AI that I think really works. Um, none of it's what we call artificial general intelligence, but most of the AI we have doesn't owe that much to neuroscience and, if anything, um, owes something to psychology and people trying to figure out how human beings or other animals uh, I solve agree. problems.
1: Com- yeah, I agree completely with that. Uh, you know, and I, I think AI tries to glom on to, you know, things like neural nets and all of that to, to try to give them up some biological tie but i think it's more marketing than anything i was about to say exactly that i think it's more yeah. marketing than anything so um, let's just, go so, ahead so i mean neural networks are very
0: very loosely modeled on the brain but it's like i'm trying to think of a metaphor it'd be like um comparing a, a child's first drawing to some you know incredibly elaborate work of art like okay they're both drawings but they're really not the same thing um Neural networks, for example, only have essentially one kind of neuron, which either fires or doesn't. Biology, first of all, separates the firing neurons from the inhibiting neurons, the positive and the negative. Um, And then there are probably a thousand different kinds of neurons in the brain with many different properties. The so-called neural networks that people are using don't have any of that. We don't really understand how the biology works, so people just ignore it, but they wind up with something that is only superficially related um, to how that brain actually functions.
1: So let's talk about consciousness. So consciousness is the experience of being you, obviously. A computer can measure temperature, but we can feel warmth. I've heard it described as the last great scientific question. We know neither how to pose scientifically nor what the answer would look like. Do you think that's a fair description of the problem of consciousness?
0: Well, the only part I'm going to give you grief about is that it's the last great scientific question. I mean, as you yourself um, said later in, in your question, it's not a well-formed question. So great scientific questions are well-formed. We we know what an answer would look like and what a methodology would be for answering them. Maybe we lack some instrument. We can't do it yet. We need a bigger, um, you know, uh, collider or something like that. But we understand in principle how you get data um, <coughs> to address it. In consciousness, we don't really at that, this point know that. So we don't know even what a consciousness meter would look like if we had one. We go around and do a bunch of experiments and say, "Well, does this worm um, that you're talking about have consciousness? Does my cat? What if I'm asleep? What if I'm in a coma?" Um, you you could start to collect data and you could build a theory around that. Um, we don't even know how we would collect the data. So, my my view is there's is something there that needs to be answered. I mean, obviously there's there is a feeling of experiencing red or experiencing orgasm or whatever um, you know we would describe as consciousness, but we don't have a, I think, real scientific purchase on what it is that we're even asking. So maybe it will turn out to be the last great scientific question, but if it is, it'll be somehow refined relative to what it is that we're
1: asking right now. And so do you believe that we can... Uh, uh, Do you believe we can create a general intelligence on on some time period measured in in centuries even? Do you believe it's possible to do that? I do, absolutely. So, um, you know, I'm widely known as a critic
0: of AI, but I'm only a critic of what people are doing now, which I think is misguided in in certain ways. Um, I certainly think it's possible to build a general intelligence. You could argue on the margins. Could a machine be conscious? I would say, well, it depends what you mean by conscious, and I don't know what the answer is. Um, But could you build a machine that, could be a much more flexible thinker than current machines. Yes, I don't. I don't see a principled reason why you couldn't have a machine that was kind of as smart as MacGyver and could figure out, you know, how to get its way out of a lock room using, you know, twi- twist ties and rubber bands or something like that, which a current machine can't do at all. But I don't see the principled reason why computers can't do that, and I see at least some notion of how we might um, move more in that direction. The Problem right now is people are. Kind of, uh, very attracted to using large databases. You I know, mean, we're in the era of big data and almost all of the research is around what you can do with big data. And that leads to solutions to certain kinds of problems. Like, how do I recognize a picture and label it? If I have a lot of labels from other people that have taken similar pictures, but it doesn't necessarily lead you to questions about what would I do if I had this small amount of data and I was addressing a problem that nobody had ever seen before. And that's what humans are good at. And that's what's lacking. Um, from machines. But this doesn't mean it's an unsolvable problem in principle. It means that people are kind of like chasing research dollars and, and salary and stuff like that um, for a certain set of problems that are popular right now. And so my view is that AI is misguided right now, but not that
1: it's impossible. And so is it possible that um, that a general intelligence would have to experience have have first person experience in order to be truly intelligent. I mean, we for it to really be a general intelligence, it would have to be creative. And I mean, is it certainly possible? you
0: you would need some kinds of creativity. I mean, You right. we could argue about how creative like the average person is, but th- there is a level of creativity that you know even ordinary people have that machines are lacking right now. Now, you could argue that even human creativity is more algorithmic than we recognize. Um, and if we built the right algorithms, you'd probably get machines to do the same thing. And in fact, we now have <coughs> algorithmic composition, so machines can make up music to some extent. They probably do it better than you and I can. Uh, I don't know, musical background, no offense, uh, but you know, not as well as Paul McCartney could, right? And he's got you know, a kind of creativity that's outside of the bounds of, of what ordinary people can do. Um, but you know, machines can now make some things that at least ostensibly look creative. Another example is AlphaGo making um, chess moves that humans hadn't considered. You know, It's not the ap- apotheosis maybe of creativity, but the machine is looking at a set of possibilities that people haven't evaluated and it comes up with a good evaluation. So it, it appears to externalize us if that's creative, but maybe a lot of human creativity is the same thing. Like Somebody explores a space that nobody
1: had done before and we, we, we call that creative. Um, I wonder, I wonder, I mean, because you know, building a general intelligence that would write the Harry Potter series. I mean, you, you and I both know why computers can, quote, you know, compose music. I mean, it's a this really narrow, I mean, that's, Within that's limits, like a, rigged, right? a rigged thing that, that uh, I'm not saying they're rigging it, but it's like, what would be a problem that we could use that would imply computer? I know, we'll get it to blank. and 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 it can mimic creativity, but is that the same as being creative? Or is, or, or is mimicking creativity all creativity is?
0: I, I think we don't fully know the answer, but I would say that you could at least distinguish different kinds of creativity. So, like, <coughs> you can get a machine to compose in the style of Bach. It's very hard to get a machine to come up with something that nobody has come up with before. Now, most people can't do that either. There's, um, I wrote a book called Guitar Zero and, um, about learning to play guitar. The age of 40 and there was a quote i think it was steve Vai said about Jimi hendrix i i can play every note exactly the way he did um but i can never figure out how he decided to play it in the first place so you know you've got the hendrix level creativity where somebody just thinks of something that wasn't even on anybody else's mind and then you have the you know second tier creativity which is like the average person pushing out a song and you know machines can go somewhere in that scale they can't go to the hendrix side Maybe, yeah, you uh, Maybe eventually, but not
1: now. Sorry. Right. Do you remember iRobot Robot, where uh, the Sonny is talking to the Will the robots talking to the Will Smith character who's anti robot, and you know he says, "Can a can a can a can a robot write a symphony? Can a robot paint a masterpiece?" And Sonny's answer was, "Well, can you?" Which uh, it sounds like is what you're saying. Um, tell me this. I am of the opinion that the number of people actually working on general intelligence, the number of groups of people working on general intelligence is under a dozen. Would you agree? The number there? of groups or individuals? The number of groups. No, groups, groups. Group. Like so, yeah. so you say, OpenAI, Carnegie Mellon, uh, Google. Uh, I mean, like it, if you looked at like where the dollars all go, 99% of all the money goes into what you were just saying, you know, it's just really – this trick of studying lots of data, looking for patterns, and making projections into the future. I mean, get- I would even argue uh, that a place like OpenAI is mostly doing that. Um,
0: okay. I, 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 you know, even more extreme. I, th- I think there are some people at DeepMind who certainly care about artificial general intelligence. Um, there's some people at, at OpenAI, but yeah, I think you're exactly right. The, the large majority of the effort is really like, what can we do with the current tools? And some people have come up with really clever things to do with current tools, like um, colorizing old film, old black and white film, for example. Um, you know, it, it's a neat way of reapplying the, these statistical tools. Um, the number of people that are working on questions like, what is it to understand what's going on in a conversation, is very, very small. Um, and it might well be less than a dozen. And you're not really going to get to understand to artificial general intelligence if you have machines that can't really follow a conversation and aren't really even trying so you know current language techniques are mostly illusion so you know when you say to alexa can you turn on the lights they've got a template for that that's built in what they should do for it it's not the same thing as the machine having an understanding that you might be sitting in a dark room and would prefer light i mean there's no kind of depth to the ways that these systems are set up and that depth is kind of a prerequisite to what I would call artificial general intelligence.
1: Yeah, I wrote an article about how the Alexa and Google Home answered the same exact questions differently and they were questions you would think would be the same like who designed the American flag or how many minutes are in a year and they gave different answers and And the reason is, is because who designed the American flag? One said, you know, this Robert Hecht and one said Betsy Ross and Hecht designed the 50 star configuration. And and likewise, with the minutes in a year, it boiled down to one was doing a solar year and one was doing a calendar year. And so you're Mm -hmm. right. A a human would say, well, what do you mean by a year exactly? Uh, Because it understands, uh, a human understands the question. And so they can't resolve ambiguity, but so, they have trouble with ambiguity. They, they
0: have trouble with discourse, too. So um, discourse is about having back and forth. So trying to refine, you know, how did you get to that answer? What would it be like if you know we changed this assumption in the kind of conversation that we're having right now? Um, and these systems don't do that. And there are other other kind of giveaways. So We talk a lot about this, Ernie Davis and I do, it in this new book, Rebooting AI, that's coming out in September. We go through a lot of examples of basic things that machines you'd expect them to be able to do, and they can't really, like, just synthesize a bunch of data across a bunch of different web pages. So if I ask you which Supreme Court justice served the longest, if that isn't on a single specific web page and you have to compile it across 10 pages, forget it. The systems aren't going to be able to do that because they don't really understand the content. So it's one thing to match a keyword or set of words, and maybe you'll get a hit of exactly um, or almost exactly the question that I'm asking. But if it requires machine to put information together that hasn't by chance been put together before, they can't really do that because they don't know what any of it
1: means. So you brought up rebooting AI. Uh, give uh, f- tell us what what what's the thesis of the book and why did you why did you just you and your co-author decide to write it.
0: The thesis of the book is that AI has headed off, kind of spiraled out of control in the wrong direction. There's a ton of hype for it. It actually works better than it ever has before, but that direction is all about this very shallow, superficial statistical learning. It so happens that there's a technique called deep learning that people are very excited about, but deep learning is not actually deep except in a very narrow technical sense, which is like how many layers in one of these neural networks. But it's not deep in the sense of really understanding things. And we wrote some pieces together. Um, New York Times op-eds and stuff like that, that were pretty widely read and pretty visible. Um, and people noticed them, but we couldn't really lay out the argument in depth. And so we decided that we were going to take some case studies, language and robotics are really the ones we developed the best, and work through why there's a, what some people might call an impedance mismatch, a mismatch, between what current machines can do and what we really would need um, for a genuine AI to be able to solve these problems. And then the rest of the argument is essentially about why if we use the techniques that we have now, we're in trouble. So we're in different kinds of trouble, like driverless cars are unlikely to be reliable enough to be able to be used generally. You might be able to use them in a specific route on particular weather, but if you want them to be able to go from any destination, any point A to point B, they're not likely to be reliable enough because the representations are too superficial. Um, Same thing with getting machines to really understand even basic stories. So we go through a children's story um, at length and show how much inference, how much reasoning and thought an ordinary person is doing reading a story written for nine-year-olds and how far away that is from what we've got now, which means if you want a system to read things for you, you can't count on it actually understanding what's going on, so it can be easily led astray. So now we have you know, literature about adversarial examples, for example, systems um, getting fooled by the things that they see visually. But that extends to the things they read and, and so forth. Um, so we, we wind up now where we have these AI systems that people are using. They're relatively easy to construct. We have the data. And so people are tempted into using them. And then they have all kinds of biases. They're not reliable. And there's a difference between like getting something 80% correct, if it's an AI system to rec- recommend a book or an advertisement, getting an AI system to be 80% correct if it's driving your car or taking care of your grandfather. I like the example of if you had an elder care robot and it's 90% correct, um, lifts your grandfather into bed 90% of the time correctly, well, that's not just not acceptable, right? You can't dra- drop grandpa one time out of 10. Um, so the point of the book is if we use these techniques that we have now, we're in trouble. And we really, really need to reshape the enterprise even though people are so excited about it it's also so, i'll just say one more sentence it's its also a um kind of guide of how to be skeptical there was an old um book that we took some inspiration from called how to lie with statistics um which you may have seen once upon a time um, and there's a little element of that here we're trying to teach people how to not get sucked in by all the hype and ai
1: well you know I, I agree that the, the, the philosophical underpinning of what we do now is we take large data sets, we look for patterns, we make projections into the future. And that is a is a shallow thing, as you point out. There's, But what do you suggest is like kind of a different methodology in, entirely? Is it because uh, like at the Allen Institute or in Itzioni, you know, they're trying to make an AI that can pass sixth grade science exams. Uh, you know, So they're mm-hmm. really, I think, trying to do that kind of understanding. But, and but how, and how, they, part,
0: partly because of my own instigation, um, I, I used to talk fairly often to Paul Allen and I talked to Orit quite often, um, are focusing on common sense reasoning as well. And that's a lot Sorry. of what we emphasize in the book is, is common sense. So we have a chapter about what that even means. Um, we have a chapter about kind of lessons from how human cognition works um, that, that try to paint what we think is kind of the least that needs to be built in. So another theme we haven't talked about per se is people talk a lot about machine learning right now. And um, it's great to have machines learn things, but they need some things built in as well in order to start. And there's kind of a pendulum, a nature nurture pendulum um, in AI as there have been in many other fields historically right now that pendulum is all the way on the side of let's learn everything from scratch. A perfect example of that is the Atari game system that. DeepMind built that allowed them to sell themselves to Google. Um, So that system knew nothing about games except um, it saw pixels on a screen and it knew how to move the joystick. It had commands built in for left, right, up, down, press the fire button. Um, And it learned everything it needed to do to, let's say, play breakout um, without anything built in about what an object is or what space or time is and so forth. The catch is, it doesn't really have a, a deep representation. So you can watch it um, like break through a wall and you're like, wow, it's learned the whole concept of the game. But if you move the paddle three pixels, the whole thing falls apart. So it's again, incredibly superficial. And that's because it's starting too much from scratch. So part of what we're arguing is you need some things built in. And we, we take a perspective that really goes back to Plato and especially Immanuel Kant, which is you need to be born, essentially, um, with sense of space and time and object and so forth. And Liz Spelke, the developmental psychologist at Harvard, has, has made um, similar arguments with respect to human children. We're saying, hey, let's look at these things that human children, in fact, other animals start with, and maybe we need to craft those into our machines before we set them to the job of learning so that what they learn is much richer and more
1: sophisticated. So... You know, if I were to pose a complex question that I would want to ask a computer, and the question would be, um, Dr. Smith is eating at his favorite restaurant when he receives a phone call. Glancing down at his phone or answering the call, he looks worried, gets up, runs out the door without paying his bill. Are the owners likely to prosecute him? The person says, well, it's his favorite restaurant. They probably know him. And he probably just—he's a doctor. He just got some call, and he'll just settle up the next time he comes in. So no, they're not going to call the police. So how- right. and a person could iterate on that too. You, you could add a few
0: extra facts, and then maybe we would change our minds. But you could reason about it. So you could say, well, what is the relevance of how often he's been to that particular restaurant? Um, how is he dressed? Did he smile at anybody on the way out? Did, you know, you, you can reason as the facts go back and forth, right? So. When we, um, you know, go to a legal case, you know, the details of the facts matter a lot as, as we try to reason about what people's motivations were, what their alternatives were, what the set of possibilities were, and so forth. Um, machines can't do that at all right now.
1: Yeah, and so how do you, do you, how do you solve that problem? I mean, a, a few episodes ago, we had uh, Doug Lennett with the site, Psych Project. Mm-hmm. You know, they okay. tried to instantiate, like, every... You know, they tried to build a model of the universe, as it were, uh, hierarchical. And, and, I mean, you know, it's a a lifetime of work. Is is that what you do or
0: how do you solve the problem? I'm a big fan of what Doug tried to do. I would do it differently if I were doing it now. Um, You have to remember, he started in the late 1980s. But I think um, that the spirit of what he was trying to do was right. We need a large database of machine interpretable knowledge. Now, he tried to hand code it all. Um, hiring a lot of philosophers and teaching them to, to code that knowledge in nuanced and sophisticated ways. Um, and it was almost all stated in logic. And if we were doing things nowadays, we would probably want much greater room for probability. Not everything sort of fits neatly into a binary distinction. Um, and we would probably want to learn a lot of that knowledge um, rather than trying to hand code it. And it turns out even after 30 years, he probably hasn't hand coded enough knowledge Um, to work in a typical situation. So there needs to be some machine learning component, not necessarily the kind of machine learning that's uh, popular in the field right now, but some kind of ways for algorithms to learn from data. Um, But I think the broad thrust of what he was trying to do is right. metaphor I sometimes use is, I think Doug was trying, Doug Lennett, was trying to get across the right mountain and pick the wrong path. And most of the field right now isn't even trying to get across the right mountain. And they're suffering as a consequence. They may not even see the suffering, but the reality is when they try to attack some of the problems that motivated Doug Bennett, they're just not really doing it at all. And what's happened is the questions that used to be popular are just ignored right now. Like Peter Norvig, who's a very well-known AI researcher at Google, (coughs) did his dissertation on story understanding. People used to try to solve that problem. Roger Schenck was famously involved in it. it's not like that problem was solved. We still don't get, know how to have a machine understand the story. It's that people moved on to other problems, like how do I match keywords at scale for the web? And you know, there was a lot of money to be made, it was very useful. There's nothing wrong with their having done that, but these core problems have not been solved and I don't see how to solve them without something that at least has the spirit of what Lennett was trying to accomplish.
1: Yeah, it's just that you know, industry, enterprises, if there were no more AI developments from this moment on, it would probably take 10 years to just take what we, the simple techniques we know now, and apply them to all of the real problems they could solve in enterprises. How do I, you know, make my trucks use 10% less fuel or predict when my machine's going to break down with 10% more accuracy? Or where do I deadhead my planes overnight? And my, all of these are, are the kinds of questions. So it's like for the foreseeable future, all the money is going to go into this technique we know that can give measurable results. Like who's the person or what's the group? Is it a university that's going to have to kind of start over with this? uh, Well, I mean um, that brings us in a way to why I built this company,
0: um, just launched this company uh, with four other people, including Rodney Brooks um, called robust.ai. So part of our view, Rod and I, um, He was one of the people who invented the Roomba robot. He's a leading light in robotics. Um, He and I came from different perspectives, but to the same place. So he's a roboticist, and he's been very frustrated with the state of that field. And I'm a cognitive scientist, and I'm very frustrated with the way that psychology has been neglected from AI. We both look at deep learning and say, yeah, all these statistics are nice, but they're not rich enough. Um, And we both realize that in robotics, the rubber meets the road. You can't, Fake things with statistics because the environment changes too much. Um, so, if you wanted to build something like Rosie the robot, for example, you'd have to have a system that is flexible enough to cha- deal with changes in the environment, deal with the unexpected, um, because it's a very different situation from, say, an assembly line where things, you know, you might pack a, mil- <clears throat> a million iPhones into a million boxes, and it's always the same. Um, so, we think that robotics is a good field. To push on making a better quality AI. It it keeps you honest in a way that like advertising recommendation just doesn't.
1: Well, that's pretty exciting. You know, he he pioneered the concept of the juice, right? He said that if you lock an animal in a box, uh, it desperately tries to get out. If you put a robot in a box, it just, you know, goes through some protocol and that difference between you know, he doesn't think it's anything supernatural or anything like that, but the, there's some essence, some that the animal has that it's trying to solve this problem that a robot just simply sequentially going through a bunch of choices. So so tell me more about robots. Is it robots.ai or robots.ai? It's, it's robust. R-O-B-U-S-T. Dot oh, AI. I am sorry. Uh, well we'll <laughs> make sure we link to it correctly. Robust AI. Robust.ai. And the the name is pointing out both a goal
0: of our company, and it's a little bit of a dig on the, the field as a whole. So most uh, solutions in AI right now are not robust. They're brittle, right? That's the opposite of robust. So they work on some very narrow set of circumstances, and then you change something, they don't work anymore. So I mentioned the Atari game system of DeepMind. That's an example. It works if the paddle is you know exactly in the placement where it's been in your training data, but it doesn't work if the paddle moves up a few pixels. So we're trying at robust.ai, and we just launched um, to build solutions to robotics that are more robust. So um, you know, there's a kind of culture of demos in, in robotics right now. So you, you show a robot doing a backflip, and you, you make 20 videos of it, and you show the one case where it really worked. Well, we want to build robots that they work 20 out of 20 cases. Um, and that's going to require you know, a different conception about how you build the software. And we're building a fundamentally new, we hope, industrial-grade software stack to support all kinds of different robotic activities and make them more robust.
1: Well, that is ambitious. So um, where are you at in that endeavor? You just started the company. What's your, you know, what's your, your timeline? What are you going to try to build and when and all of that?
0: We, we hope that we will first be showing a select group of people, what we've got in mind, let's say a year from now. Uh Um, uh, We have five founders. We just started hiring people. Um, I'm imagining this is going to air a little bit after we have the conversation, but um, you know, we, we were already doing well in hiring. We we raised a very large seed round, so we have plenty of money um, to get started. We we've set up offices in California, um, and you know, we're we're uh, excited to go and and um, full of ideas. Rod is writing um, first drafts of code, and and it's exciting.
1: All right. Well. Um I see we're, we're coming up on time here. You're clearly a fascinating guy. Uh, where do people go to keep up with you know, what, what your mind is up to? Um, I
0: suppose if I were a better person, I would update garymarcus.com more regularly, but I, I should update it very soon. Um, and then two websites are soon to be available. We'd be rebooting.ai, which will be tied to the book that we mentioned, and robust.ai, which is uh, where the company can be found. And at Gary Marcus at Twitter.
1: All right, well, um, thank you for being on the show. Come back anytime you want and we'll pick the conversation up.
0: If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.